Uh, please follow along um, in your pew Bibles, page 1561, uh, Acts chapter 8, 1b to 25. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and moaned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were baptised or lame were healed. So there was a great joy in that city. Now for some time a man named Simon had practised sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptised, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. <clears throat> Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness <coughs> excuse me, and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Thanks, Brad. Morning, all. As we come to God's word, let me lead us in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as your word is read and taught to us today, please prepare our ears to hear, our minds to understand, and our hearts to walk in your ways. Please protect us from sinful unbelief and disobedience, and please produce in us the fruit of your spirit for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. What do you think when you hear stories of gospel progress, when you hear the gospel going out and being received and believed? Uh, Not that long ago, we heard from our, our gospel partners, Adam and Avril Friend. We heard from them about the incredible growth of the church in Madagascar. Do you remember that from a few weeks ago? Yeah. Uh, They shared with us about believers turning to Jesus in their thousands. And then there were churches popping up overnight in communities across the country. And and they shared with us the desperate need for pastors for these new believers in these new churches. And hearing this was fantastic. And I'm so glad that as a church we're partnering with um, Adam and Avril for the sake of our brothers and sisters over there. But I wonder if hearing those things left you with some questions. Because you look over there in Madagascar, we hear about that, and there's this incredible gospel progress. And then we look around here in Penrith, and it's far less dramatic. Here, people coming to believe in Jesus is rare, not regular. Uh, Church growth is is a trickle rather than a torrent. And we could conclude that what's happening in Madagascar right now, it might as well be happening on another planet from us. It's so different from our experience. Maybe it's hard for us to even imagine God's gospel having that kind of impact here and now. The passage that we're looking at in Acts today serves as an encouragement about the impact of God's gospel, a reminder of things that are true about the gospel whenever and wherever it's heard and received and believed, even here in Penrith. Uh, When we were last in Acts a couple of weeks ago, gospel progress anywhere wasn't a given. At the end of chapter 7, we saw a regular believer, Stephen, being killed because he spoke the truth about Jesus to the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem. And then at the start of chapter 8, we saw the the effects of his death. Uh, Persecution broke out against the church, And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Can you imagine what that would be like? Uh, Needing to leave this city because the the risk of harm is too great. Uh, Moving yourself or your family to Newcastle or to Bathurst or to Wollongong or to Canberra for that reason. It looks like a defeat or at least a retreat, doesn't it? But in chapter 8, verse 4, we read that those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. In other words, believers arrived and they introduced themselves to their new neighbours. And when their neighbours asked what neighbours do, and they asked, well, where have you come from? These believers said, oh, we're, we're from Jerusalem. Why are we here? Oh, we're running away because our fellow Jews are trying to kill followers of Jesus like us. And by the way, let me tell you the good news about him. That's what's playing out here. Uh, Even as they're scattered, they don't stop sharing the good news about Jesus. And in their scattering, they're being used by God to gather people, 
to gather all kinds of people to Jesus Christ. And in the rest of our passage, we get to glimpse what happens when the gospel is scattered to Samaria. And there's three things we can notice about the impact of God's gospel as we see it come to Samaria. Uh, first, we see that when, when the gospel comes to town, it grabs attention. It grabs attention. Uh, second, we see that it, it destroys division. And third, we'll see that it exposes hearts. So it grabs attention, destroys division, exposes hearts. That's where we're headed today. Uh, so first, when the gospel comes to Samaria, it grabs attention. Uh, to understand the attention-grabbing na um, nature of the gospel in Samaria, uh, we've got to see what had the attention of people before the gospel came. And, and Luke, the writer, shares this with us. We're given an insight into, uh, into that when we meet Simon the sorcerer in verse 9. Uh, look with me, verse 9. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. And so here we have Simon. This is where the attention of the Samaritan people is focused. As a sorcerer, Simon was someone who appeared to have spiritual power, to be able to control things that other people couldn't. And Simon knows that being able to do that is a big deal. He boasts about himself. He draws attention to himself. And the Samaritan people were captivated by him. Did you see what they call him? The great power of God. Now, to us, this might sound a little silly, uh, a little bit superstitious maybe. Maybe they're just gullible. Um, and we might wonder how they could be captivated by Simon like this. Um, but what we see in the, in, the, in the Samaritan response to Simon is something that has come through their history. Uh, because in their history, the Samaritans had rejected the ways that God had made himself known. And they'd separated themselves from God's words and his works. Uh, they put in place and permitted rivals and replacements to what God had said and done. Um, they'd made their own capital city. They'd made their own temple. They'd set up their own religious practices. They'd chosen their own selection of scriptures. And in doing this, the Samaritans have left the door open. They've left the door open for anyone spiritually impressive to walk in and wow them and lead them to worship. And this is what Simon, the Samaritan sorcerer, does as he draws the attention of all Samaria to himself. But then, with all the attention on Simon, God graciously sends the gospel into Samaria through Philip. Um, in verse 5, we read that Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. Remember Philip? Uh, he's one of the seven men who were chosen for ministry by the apostles because of his response to God's word. And as a Jew from Jerusalem, you can imagine that there might be a bit of tension, him coming into a Samaritan territory. Uh, you can imagine there would have been an anticipation of judgment, an expectation of hostility, maybe humiliation from this Jewish man. But as Philip comes into this Samaritan city, look what happens. This is what we see in verse 5. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. 
So there was great joy in that city. Now, did you see the attention shift that has happened here? The attention of the Samaritans shifts from Simon to Philip. They see what Philip does and they're impressed, but it's what he says that they draw their attention to. And so what does Philip say? Well, in verse 12, we're told that he's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. This good news is what gets their attention. And I wonder, does it get ours? As we go through Acts and as we hear the response to the gospel message, I think there's a chance it can just wash over us. Of course the kingdom of God is good news. But I think it's helpful for us to pause and let the goodness of the gospel grab our attention again. Imagine for a moment that for your whole life, the kingdom of God wasn't good news. Instead, the kingdom of God was a reminder of your failure. It was about exclusion and conflict and division. It was about losing and letting go of the things that God had offered to people like you. For Samaritans, the kingdom of God was a promise from God that offered hope for other people, but not for them, not for people who had treated God the way that they had. And so when a Samaritan was reminded by others of their separation from God, it's harsh, but it's fair because of the way that they had failed. And then the gospel comes to town. Imagine that you hear your enemy, a Jew, sharing the message of God's grace and forgiveness with you. You hear him sharing the message of God's kingdom that has come not to other people, but to people like you. And you don't need to go to Jerusalem to get it. And you don't need to sacrifice in the Jerusalem temple to enjoy it. Everything you need to be right with God has been given to you by God through his son, Jesus Christ. The same Jesus who had shown his love to the Samaritan woman at the well, the same Jesus who had healed a Samaritan leper, who had told the parable of the good Samaritan, the same Jesus who died on a cross outside Jerusalem and has risen again so that people like you can be welcomed into God's kingdom forever. This is the good news of the kingdom of God. It's a message of God's grace to unworthy people, sinful people, people who have permitted and have put in place rivals and replacements for God, people like the Samaritans, people like you and me. Now, I've got to ask you, just as I ask myself, does this good news still grab our attention? Is the gospel of the kingdom of God still good news for us? Or has it just become part of the news cycle? In terms of our attention, we've got the gospel news and it's on the same page as the weather and the sport. I think Acts is meant to be an antidote to this because it reminds us that gospel isn't just news. It's the news that changes everything. It's the news that grabs our attention because it's good news from God. Wherever the news of the kingdom of God is heard and believed and received, it continues to be proclaimed, not just as news, but as good news. And our prayerful and confident hope for the people of Penrith is that what we know to be good news, what we share as good news, will be received as good news, as God does his work in their lives, bringing the gospel 
into them. Because just as we've seen in Samaria, when the gospel comes to town, it grabs attention. It's not just news. It's good news. Now, in the verses that follow, Luke keeps our focus on this Samaritan town and he shows us our second point, that when the gospel comes to town, it, it doesn't just grab attention, it also destroys division between believers. Uh, after the Samaritans accept the word of God through Philip, uh, Luke tells us in verse 14 that word gets back to Jerusalem, back to the apostles in Jerusalem. And two of the apostles, Peter and John, are sent by the others to Samaria. Uh, they're sent because the gospel ha has crossed a geographical border between Judea and Samaria. Because the gospel has destroyed a cultural division between Jews and Samaritans. And what we see, it's, this is the fulfillment of a significant promise that God has made to his people. Divided as they were between uh, north and south, between the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. There are big things happening here as the gospel comes to Samaria. And because this is such a significant moment of fulfillment in salvation history, there are some unique things that God is doing here. Things that don't happen in the same way when someone else comes to believe in Jesus. Uh, Peter and John being sent by the apostles is, is one unique thing. That doesn't happen every time. Uh, the apostles don't personally verify every believer. They aren't present in every city where the gospel is proclaimed. But they come here to this Samaritan town in this case. And it's the same th with the things that we see happen in verse 15. Because when Peter and John arrive, uh, God has temporarily and uniquely made a difference between the believers in Jerusalem and the believers in Samaria. And it's to do with receiving the Holy Spirit. Uh, look at me from verse 15. When they, that's Peter and John, arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when we read this, it might leave us scratching our heads a little bit, uh, wondering if we've missed something, uh, wondering whether we're in the same boat as these Samaritans. We've believed in Jesus, but maybe we're missing out on something like they were. Um, I think some churches have used this passage unhelpfully to actually create new divisions between believers, uh, turning something that's unique and temporary into a new ritual or a new requir requirement for someone to become a true Christian. I'm like saying that if you want to be a true Christian, you need a priest or an official to lay hands on you. That's how it happens. Or, or saying that you can believe in Jesus, but if you want to be a true Christian, you need to have a separate experience of receiving the Holy Spirit. That's not what's happening for normal believers, but it is something that's uniquely happening here. What we're seeing here in this passage, it's not meant to confuse us. It's not meant to lead us to put our confidence in rituals or in requirements. And it's not meant to create new divisions among believers, quite the opposite. In Acts chapter 2, Peter speaks to the Jews at Pentecost of repentance and forgiveness and receiving the Holy Spirit all going together. And if you're a believer in Jesus, that's what God has already done in your life. They're not separate events or separate stages of becoming a Christian. But even if this is unique, we're still left wondering, well, what is happening here? 
The Samaritans believe the same gospel. They're baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, but they haven't yet received God's Holy Spirit like the Jewish believers have. Why is there this separation, this delay? Well, God puts this separation in place in this case for the sake of the unity of his church now made up of Jewish and Samaritan believers. Um, Because of the history of division between Jews and Samaritans, there was a risk that division would continue in the church. Uh, Jewish believers wouldn't see Samaritans as brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, Samaritan believers would want a reason to see themselves as distinct and separate from Jewish believers. And if that happened, the gospel would be no different from any other human reconciliation project. But God wants to show that his gospel doesn't just cover over division. It destroys division. It brings real reconciliation and restoration between believers. And God's gospel work is then seen in the relationships that exist between God's people. In the, way that we, uh, that we, in the way that believers seek relationships with one another as God's people, even with those who are different from us. And this happens because we know what God has done, that God has brought us together in the same gospel, under the same Jesus, giving us the same spirit. Now, this doesn't mean that God has erased every difference so that we're all the same, because we're not. But in the gospel, he's given us a unity with one another in Christ. And our unity in Christ, not our similarities or differences, is the reason that we gather with one another and love one another and relate to one another. That's the basis for our relationship as believers. I wonder if uh, one of the places that we might see this play out is over morning tea. We enjoy morning tea after our services. What do you think it would look like for our unity in Christ to be expressed there? Well, for me, maybe I'd be more thoughtful about who I talk to first, looking for opportunities to talk to people who I don't know very well. Maybe I'd listen more carefully to what people share so I can learn what they care about, so I can learn what is different between us, so I can be encouraged by God's work in their life that might be different from mine. And maybe I'd be more eager to talk to those who are new or who are visiting, welcoming them, wanting to know them. Now, as a congregation, I think we've improved in this area in the last year or so. But it's a consistent challenge too, as God continues to bring people who are different to us, for us to welcome and love. God does what he does in these verses so that Samaritan and Jewish believers can witness and can live out his unifying gospel work so that believers like them and like us can be certain that we are accepted together by God, that we can be certain that we are welcomed to be his people in the same way through believing the same gospel and receiving the same spirit by God. And this is the unique work of God that we're seeing in these verses. The apostles ask God to give his Holy Spirit to these Samaritan believers They place their hands on the Samaritan believers and God answers their prayer so that this group of people, so that the apostles, so the Jerusalem church can all be certain that when the gospel comes to town, these deepest of divisions are dealt with. So far, we've seen two impacts of the gospel as it's come to Samaria. It's attention grabbing, it's division destroying, 
And the third impact is that we see uh, is that people's hearts are exposed. And the heart that we see exposed belongs to Simon the sorcerer. And before the Gospels came to town, remember, he had everyone's attention. And then Philip arrived proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And in verse 13, we were told that Simon's response was the same as everyone else's. Simon believed. He was baptised along with his fellow Samaritans. But then the next time we see him is after Peter and John have come. Now they place their hands on the Samaritan believers and the Samaritan believers receive the Holy Spirit. And this is what we hear in verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was giving at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Well, when Simon makes this offer, um, Peter responds to it with this cutting rebuke in verse 20. He says to Simon, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he might forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Now, this is the moment where we're invited to see Simon as he truly is. When the gospel of God exposes his heart. And it's easy to see where his request is coming from. I mean, Simon had just lost the attention of the Samaritans because of the coming of the gospel. He used to be known as the great power of God. And then the gospel of God showed up. But as they say, if you can't beat them, join them. So Simon becomes a believer along with everyone else. But Peter helps us to see that despite his outward belief, Simon's heart has not changed. It is not right before God. And despite his outward baptism, Simon is full of bitterness and captive to sin. And this is the concerning thing. While he looked like he was a believer, part of the Christian church, he isn't. As Peter exposes his hearts, we see that Simon was never converted. Instead, Peter shows us that Simon's belief and his baptism was about himself. Like the Samaritans before him, Simon had set up a rival and a replacement gospel to the one that God had brought. Simon's gospel isn't about the good news of the kingdom of God. It's about the good news of the kingdom of Simon. How Simon will be king. How Simon will get his way. How Simon's recognition and reputation among the Samaritans is going to be restored. That's what's going on in his heart as he comes to belief, as he's baptised, as he makes his offer to Peter and John. And it's confronting, isn't it? Now, usually we know nothing about someone's heart. If someone looks like a believer and speaks like a believer, that's all we can know, right? But in Acts, there are a couple of times where God gives us a glimpse of what is really happening. He did it with Ananias and Sapphira, who deceived the church in Jerusalem. And he does it here and now with Simon the sorcerer in Samaria. And I think the reason that we're shown Simon's heart exposed is to protect the church from him and this false gospel that he's living out. But I think it's also to show us the gospel of grace 
that Simon missed. Because God's gospel was and is a gospel of grace to the undeserving. A gospel that requires the great ones, the powerful ones, to admit their sinfulness. For us to admit our spiritual neediness before God. It's a gospel that proclaims Jesus as Lord and Saviour, as the only one who can rescue us and make us right with God. We can't do that ourselves. It's a gospel that proclaims Jesus as the only one who is worthy of worship. And this makes the gospel challenging for all of us, for all of our hearts to accept. Because apart from God's work in us, the gospel that usually runs our life is about ourselves. The good news of the kingdom is about our kingdom and not God's. When God's gospel comes to town, the gospel of our kingdom has got to go. In the gospel, Jesus doesn't just offer to give our kingdom a new coat of Dulux weather shield. No, he's doing a knockdown rebuild, a spiritual rebuild from the foundations up, from the heart out a rebuild that replaces our gospel with his, that replaces our kingdom with his. And it's a rebuild that's free for us because it's been paid for up front by Jesus. To many of us who are believers, this offer sounds so good, but we can't pretend that it's easy to accept. Many people in Acts, Many people in Madagascar, many people in Penrith don't accept it, won't accept it. But when God works in someone's life and they do accept his gospel, when God's good news becomes good news for them, when the deep divisions between people as fellow believers is destroyed, when God's gospel becomes their gospel, wow. That's what we pray for. That's why we proclaim That's why we praise God when we see God's gospel come to town and change lives, whether it happens here in Penrith, whether it happens there in Madagascar or anywhere in between. After what we've heard about the impact of God's gospel, uh, we're now going to consider the impact of God's gospel on us. Uh, We're going to do that by singing our next song as, as our prayer to God. Um, Our song is called Undivided, and in the chorus, this is what we'll sing. Undivided, I want to live for you. Single-minded, all that I say, all that I do. Sanctify me, take me and make me new, that I might live for Christ, my Lord. Let's stand, let's sing together.